0: Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, the podcast of the Yiddish Book Center. I'm Aaron Lansky, and I'm here today with Professor Devin Nahr, an historian and the chair of Sephardic Studies at the University of Washington. Dr. Nahr's research includes the Jews of Salonika and a new book now in progress entitled Reimagining the Sephardic Diaspora. But perhaps of greatest interest to our listeners is his groundbreaking work in collecting Jewish books in Ladino or Judeo-Spanish, much as the Yiddish Book Center has done for Yiddish. Devin, welcome to the podcast
1: thank you very much for having me, Aaron.
0: Great. Listen, I have so many questions for you today, especially about your book collection efforts. But I think I have to start with something a little more basic first, which is, what is Ladino? Who spoke it? What does it sound like? And where does it fit in relation to Hebrew and Yiddish and other Jewish languages?
1: Yeah, well, thank you very much. Those are those are great questions. I mean, I think maybe the easiest way to think about it is sort of that Ladino is, is kind of a language that developed in parallel to Yiddish. So if Uh, We think about, in the case of Ladino and Sephardic Jews, uh, after the expulsion of Spain in in 1492, uh, many of those Jews wound up traversing the Mediterranean and settling in what was then the Ottoman Empire. So today's Greece and Turkey, Bulgaria, Egypt, Land of Israel. And uh, until the 20th century, the Jews in those communities continued to speak a language that was based largely on medieval Castilian and other Spanish dialects that developed over time and incorporated uh, many of the linguistic elements of the neighboring populations, including Turkish and Greek, uh, later the languages of European prestige, French and Italian. Hmm. Uh, The whole while, um, having a very strong Hebrew component, being written in Hebrew script, and uh, being one of the defining features of jewish life in the eastern mediterranean for five centuries
0: so so i've heard the language referred to by different names ladino judezmo judeo-spanish what, what's the right name and what's the difference between those if anything yeah
1: <laughs> you're uh, you're going right to uh, one of the the hot spots in the discussion about <laughs> okay. uh, this language so it, it continues to be debated uh, to be honest the, the the most appropriate or correct name to refer to the language um I, some scholars like to make a distinction between Two varieties of the, this Judeo-Spanish language, uh, and use the term Ladino to refer specifically to those texts that were translated word for word from Hebrew into the uh, into Judeo-Spanish. Uh. So, like a Hebrew, uh, a translation of the Tanakh, for example, word for word that preserves some of the Hebrew uh, sentence structure, even though the language is, is Spanish-based. That would be sort of a strict definition of Ladino, whereas the spoken language uh, has some distinct features of its own um, and is a little bit different from the literary language that developed. And that language is oftentimes referred to as Judeo-Spanish, which uh, is itself really a 19th century innovation, a new way to think about the language that was sort of brought in by... Uh, linguists and anthropologists from the West, looking at this community in the Ottoman Empire and thinking about a way to classify their language. Um, the Jews themselves uh, used another term to refer to their language, um, a couple other terms actually, one of which was Judesmo, uh, which kind of parallels the term Yiddish, in Yiddish meaning Jewish, Right. Judesmo in Judesmo means also Jewish.
0: Ah, as we say in Yiddish, kochman I understand. Okay, so okay,
1: very good. And there's another another variety of that, which is also Judeo, which is it means Jew. Uh, so huh. the language and the people could be referred to by the same term. So there are a lot of different varieties in terms of the uh, the vocabulary that is used just to describe the language itself. Got it. Uh, and those continue to be sort of debated debated in different circles here in the United States. Ladino has sort of become the ascendant term to refer both to the, uh, the more uh, archaic translation variety of the language as well as the spoken language. But in Europe and in other parts of the world, um, this distinction between Ladino and the, the vernacular is, is, is preserved to a greater extent.
0: Thank you for clarifying all that. So sure. so I want to talk about book collection, but first we better talk a little bit about Ladino books in general. You okay. Know, Yiddish literature comprises I don't know, forty thousand discrete titles, three thousand separate newspapers, journals, magazine. Is, is there a similar body of literature in Ladino?
1: Well, uh there is a similar body of literature if we think about it maybe in proportional terms rather than in whole numbers. Okay. Because if we're if we're talking about say the turn of the, maybe just before World War I, and we're talking about the Ottoman Empire before it is dissolved and these new nation-states emerge, we're talking about maybe 300,000 Ladino-speaking Jews. Um, so we're talking about a relatively small population.
0: Right, and that's, um, that's in people. contrast with something like 11 million in, in, in Yiddish. Right, exactly,
1: right. exactly. So we have a much smaller uh, demographic representation of Ladino-speakers And that is reflected in their literary output, um, which was much more modest. Perhaps we're talking about 5,000 books. Uh,
0: 5,000 titles.
1: Yeah, 5,000 titles. And we're talking about maybe 300 to 400 newspapers and magazines uh, in Ladino. That includes those that were published um, throughout the Ottoman Empire and also in uh, places uh, to which they migrated, including uh, the United States or maybe there were over a dozen um over a dozen Judeo-Spanish newspapers published primarily in New York.
0: And, and when when did most of this publishing happen?
1: So it it really begins in the in the 16th century um hmm. and it begins primarily with uh texts that uh have sort of Hebrew as the reference language. So we have translations of the Tanakh uh appearing then we have the development of Musar literature, ethical literature that is based also on on Ladino literature, uh, excuse me, on uh, on on, uh, on Hebrew literature, and probably the most important um, important book to emerge uh, during this earlier period, beginning in the 18th century, is a series of books called Me'am Loez. And uh, the Mameloes was probably the most important Ladino book series published, produced between 1730 and 1899 by a series of rabbis from one generation to the next, basically seeking to make accessible traditional Jewish knowledge, um, biblical stories, Talmudic stories, rabbinical commentaries, traditions and customs, available to Ladino-speaking Jews in their spoken language rather than in Hebrew. And uh, this, this series of books was produced as a kind of commentary on the different books of the Bible. So beginning with Genesis by this first Rabbi Yaakov Huli in, uh, in the 17th century and his, uh, his, uh, his sort of intellectual kin and his disciples continued to produce commentaries based around the Hebrew Bible that made traditional Jewish knowledge accessible in the Jewish vernacular of the Ottoman Empire.
0: I see. And then what about modern literature, kind of post-Enlightenment modern literature? Does that come as well? Yes, that comes
1: also in the the 19th century. We see the birth of the newspaper uh, in the Ottoman Empire, the earliest one in 1842 in Izmir, and then other important journals being established in Salonica and Istanbul and Sofia and uh, other places as well, and these newspapers uh, took on a variety of political orientation, just as Yiddish newspapers did. Right. And you could find, uh, by the time we get to the interwar period in Salonica, we have maybe ten or fifteen different uh, Ladino newspapers and journals being published in Salonica, which was the largest center of Ladino-speaking Jews. And this included uh, Zionist newspapers of a variety of different stripes, secular, uh, Mizrahi, religious nationalists. We had socialist and communist Ladino newspapers. We had neighborhood-based newspapers. We had literary reviews. We had political tracts. And on the other hand, there were a lot of translations that Hmm. were developing during this period, especially from European languages like French. Uh, Victor Hugo is very popular, Uh, Moliere is popular and his writings, and then we also have translations from Hebrew, we have translations um, from some of the local languages, fewer, but a few from Turkish and a few from Greek, and a few, this is one of the main differences, you could say, between Ladino and Yiddish uh, publications in in modern times, fewer original, uh, original works. Um, there uh, of, of secular literature, um, and that I mean there may be a lot of reasons for that, but it seems that uh, the the main focus initially was on on translation and on um, on on bringing the Jews of the Ottoman world into the general orbit of Jewish literary trends and European literary trends. I see. And that was done largely through translation.
0: Is there, though, a great Ladino novel?
1: Who? Is there a great Ladino novel? If there is a great Ladino novel, no one has yet identified, I would say, uh, this Ladino novel as the great Ladino novel. Um, there are a few Ladino novels that do emerge uh, in the interwar years. Um, one of which, one original novels, one of which uh, in Salonica is called La Sojeta Podrida, which means the lost society. And this is a very dark kind of naturalistic tale hmm. about a, uh, a, a young Jewish woman growing up in a, a very poor working-class family in Salonika. And it speaks about her trials and tribulations dealing with the uh, some of the abuse that she experiences from her family members, some problems of alcoholism and... Uh, and uh, prostitution, so a really, really kind of dark tale hmm. of the interwar years of the impoverished masses of uh, of the Salonican Jewish community.
0: Is it translated into English?
1: Ha. <laughs> that would be wonderful. It sounds it sounds good to me. Uh, I'm
0: ready to read it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: there are uh, there are very few, <laughs> very few uh, Ladino novels that have been translated into English. Very few Ladino texts in general. That have been translated into English, and this is this is sort of a lacuna that uh, we're trying to hopefully uh, begin to fill. With this and in- I have other colleagues uh, across the country and in uh, and abroad who are also trying to bring Ladino literature and Ladino writings to the attention of those interested in Jewish literature or in the language uh, more specifically.
0: If it's any consolation to you, Devin, only 2% of Yiddish literature has been translated into English at this point. And okay. we're, we're working on that as well, but these are all big projects, I'm afraid. Yes, so, indeed they are. So let's talk about where the books are today. How, how many of these books uh, and how many Sephardic Jews generally made it into the United States?
1: Um, well, that's a, those are both great questions, and they're both kind of difficult ones to answer. Um, in terms of how many Sephardic Jews came to the United States, um, those numbers are uh, a little bit hard to find, in part because Sephardic Jews coming from the Ottoman Empire and former Ottoman Empire coming to the United States were not always easily recognized as Jews. So if you want to count based on Ellis Island records or you want to look at the census data or other kinds of these uh, metrics, um, oftentimes you'll find that Jews... From this part of the world are marked down as Greeks or Turks or Arabs because of their sort of their uh,
0: uh-huh.
1: their differing geographic origins, the language, the names that they had, um, and sort of the customs and their way of comportment was a little bit different from how the majority of Jews coming to America were conceptualized and identified. Of course, Yiddish being the main marker actually, that distinguished
0: the right, Latino-speaking
1: right. Jews from the, from the, the, the masses of, of Eastern European Jews. Um, and so the numbers, we could say, between 25,000 and 50,000.
0: Okay, and so how about pretty, books?
1: And books is also a tough one as well. If you look through the Ladino press in New York, um, which was operative between 1910 and 1948, a series of different uh, newspapers, um, you can find in many of those newspapers lists of Ladino books that were available for purchase at the offices of the editors, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of titles mentioned there. Um, and it seems that those were they, those did circulate, um, and also people brought books with them when they arrived, which was you know a, process, a, a typical kind of process. If you could fit one or two books with you uh, when you came, um, and also people. Made trips back to the old country. They went back right. to Salonica or Istanbul or Rhodes, and um, they picked up literature with them uh, from there, or they sent away for it, and they would get it. So, in I terms see. of how many how many titles came to the United States, this is uh, this is a number that we do not yet have a full uh, a full and complete understanding of just yet. But we're talking in the hundreds, I at see. least I would say.
0: And that's a perfect time to talk about what you're doing now in terms of trying to collect these books. So, so what are you up to?
1: Well, so here in, uh, at the University of Washington within the Strom Center for Jewish Studies in the Jackson School of International Studies, we have established a new Sephardic Studies program. Right. And this Sephardic Studies program has come about through a very, uh, very fruitful collaboration between us at the university and our local community members because Seattle is sort of unique insofar as it has a relatively large um, Sephardic population of people of Ladino-speaking background who, compared to other um, other cities across the, the country, Ladino-speakers are a disproportionately large percentage of Seattle's Jewish population.
0: And, and why? And,
1: well, so that's a good question also. Uh, it seems that um, at the turn of the century there were a few... Uh, entrepreneurial Jews from the Ottoman Empire, especially from the island of Rhodes, which is today's, today in Greece, and an island called Marmara, which is in today's Turkey, that uh, found their way to Seattle in search of new economic opportunities. Probably, uh, most likely, it seems that they had some Greek friends who were their neighbors back in the old country who invited yes. them to come to America, and they said, if you go to the ends of the earth, in other words, if you go to the Pacific Northwest, as far as you can go, you will find a city there called Seattle, and it will remind you of home because of the Puget Sound here and the proximity to the Pacific. Oh. And they could get involved in some businesses that were familiar to them back in the old country, including and especially the, uh, the fish industry. And so some of the early uh, fish merchants here in Seattle were ladino-speaking jews from the, what was then the ottoman empire and as chain migration often works these initial young men wound up going home back to their home towns to um, to invite other relatives to marry and soon enough there were several hundred uh... sephardic jewish families in seattle and it became uh, by the time of world war one it was home to the second-largest community of Ladino-speaking Jews in the country, second only to New York.
0: What a fantastic story. I, I once had a professor who said nobody could have invented Jewish history. The whole thing is too improbable. And this is yet, yet another example, I think, huh?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so let's I mean, get I to the... the yeah, I'm sorry. Oh,
0: sorry, go ahead. No, no, you first. Go ahead.
1: No, I was, I was going to say one of the other uh, interesting components to the, the story of Ladino-speaking migration to the United States is that it becomes... One of these opportunities for Ladino-speaking and Yiddish-speaking Jews to meet each other for the first time, whether uh, in the uh, in the markets of Seattle or more likely on the Lower East Side of New York, and there are a number of very amusing stories that emerge from those encounters, based on mutual disbelief. <laughs>
0: All right. you want to you want to tell us one?
1: Well, yeah, I mean <laughs> there are quite a lot of them um, <laughs> actually. That you know, so. Uh, as a minority, with a minority Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jews really had to sort of prove themselves, in a certain sense, to uh, to the demographically predominant Yiddish-speaking Jews that they encountered, especially on the on the Lower East Side. Forget the uh, you know the 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 German-speaking Jews who came in the 19th century, or the uh, the Jews of uh, affiliated with the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue. On uh, uptown, Sheriff Israel, who had been there since colonial times,
0: right, right. but
1: just uh, a, a, and saw themselves as as much more elite compared to the Jews coming from the east. But uh, just on the on the Eastern European and the Southeastern European interactions on the Lower East Side and the Yiddish and Ladino sort of confusion, there are some really great descriptions in the in the press uh, in New York, wondering how it is that there are these people who are. Uh, speaking a language that sounds like Spanish, but they are sitting at coffee shops and they're smoking water pipes and they are drinking thick coffee out of tiny cups, yet they purport to be Jews. <laughs> you know, And uh, how can all of these different cultural elements come together? And this led to a number of, uh, well, in retrospect, at least, humorous encounters where you have uh, Ladino-speaking Jews presenting themselves to either try to get an, uh, a flat on the Lower East Side or to get employment, and sort of having to bend over backwards to prove that they are Jewish, despite the fact that they have, uh, you know, uh, Spanish-sounding names, or uh, they, they don't speak Yiddish, and they gesticulate like uh, Italians, and they look like Greeks or Arabs. And um, there are a couple of these stories, so what do they do? do they go and they present their tefillin or their talet, uh, to show, see we're Jews, or they bring their Hebrew book, their 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 Siddur, and they read, and then they say hey, you. They're told, "Hey, you don't read that right. You have you read that strangely. I don't know." Um, or one other example that we see come up in other times, the definitive way. There's one example. One of the leaders of the uh, Sephardic Jewish community describes this happening to him in 1910 when he arrived. He is asked, uh, "Well, you know." He, his, his Jewish identity is really in question, and he, uh, the Jewish uh, Ashkenazi guy he is speaking with says, well, there's only one way to find out. And he brings him to the bathroom, and he uh, asks him to pull down his uh, pants there, and uh, he sees and he says, oh, wow, well, I guess, uh, you know, you must be Muslim. That was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was his conclusion. But eventually, you know, these kinds of initial moments of uh, disbelief and uh, separation are eventually throughout the interwar years, and especially after, our, uh, there's a, a great deal of rapprochement that. Uh, that
0: Sure, develop. sure. Okay, so let's get to books.
1: Sure. Um, so uh, in terms of the books that we have here in Seattle, what's been really wonderful is that people have brought these books to me. I mean, that that's how this project began, was when I arrived here in Seattle at the University of Washington, and uh, people in the local Sephardic community found out that I, uh, that my area of expertise and interest was Sephardic history and culture, and that I could read Ladino in the traditional Hebrew script, in Rashi script, right. they started bringing me things, um, many things that they had held on to, but they didn't necessarily know what they were, and they couldn't necessarily read them anymore. These had been sort of the, uh, the heirlooms that they had inherited hmm. from parents or grandparents. And so one... Uh, some people start bringing me these books, and I'm I'm very intrigued and interested in many of these things I'd never seen before, I'd not been aware of, and then I started to make sort of a more active call, and asking people in the community if they have any Ladino books, also Ladino documents, postcards, photographs, right. any of these other um, relics and testimonies to the earlier years of uh, Sephardic history and culture. And over the course of just, you know, just more than, just over a year now, we've, uh, accumulated one of the largest collections of ladino books in the entire country and uh... we are beginning a process of trying to digitize those books both to preserve them and also to make them accessible to anyone who may have any interest in ladino literary heritage um, or sephardic history more generally
0: this is so enormously exciting and also enormously familiar to me, as you can imagine. Uh, <laughs> so, so i got to ask you a question. When I started out, I met with scholars who thought there were 70,000 Yiddish books still extant. We collected that in six months and went on to collect 1.5 million <laughs> volumes. Are you worried about the same sort of uh, underestimation problems with Ladino?
1: Well, I think I think there will be underestimation. And of course, your story uh, has served as a great inspiration for me and uh, and my colleagues here in in seattle um i don't think we will be approaching the million mark i don't think that's uh that's going to be on our horizon but we could be talking about thousands if we expanded this project and tried to go into the other uh, the other towns in the united states that had been home to important sephardic communities we could get in the we could get thousands and thousands of of, of books
0: and are you up? Are you up for the job? <laughs>
1: well, you know, uh, I got to get tenure first, and then uh, <laughs>
0: for this, they should give you tenure. Yeah.
1: Well, right, hey, maybe, yeah, maybe you can write me a letter. You yeah. know,
0: <laughs> now you have to have to ask the listeners to write the letters.
1: Right? Yeah. Yes. Please, listeners. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: but yeah, but so but, I, but I it is a it is a huge commitment of time, presumably, right?
1: No, I mean, it really is, because, you know, that what we don't really have just yet is we don't have a complete bibliography of Ladino books. And in, hmm. uh, in Israel, there have been some scholars um, who have been working on putting together a, a really a comprehensive bibliography, and they've done an excellent job. But there are still some, uh, some elements that, some, some new items we find, some inconsistencies and so we're still trying to make that information available. And also to an, a, a population here in the United States that maybe is not fully uh, literate in Hebrew, uh, we're trying to make this information available also uh, in English.
0: Now, this is just so, so tremendously important. I, I'm going to ask you a kind of slightly funny question, but I think I think sure. it needs asking. And that's that if people find Jewish books and they don't necessarily read Jewish languages or... Uh, How do they know that a book is written, actually, I mean, all Jewish, these are books presumably, you know, written in Hebrew characters. How can they tell if a book that they're looking at is Ladino as opposed to Hebrew or Yiddish? Are there any telltale signs?
1: That's a really great question. Um, I mean, I think that oftentimes um, you don't know unless you know. (laughs) Right. To a certain extent. But I think one of the things that distinguishes Ladino from Hebrew, for example, is if you are seeing diacritical marks, if you're seeing the different... uh, you know vowel points and things like that. You're most likely not dealing with a Ladino text, because uh, I, uh, as I, as far as far as I'm aware, in parallel to Yiddish, all of the vowel sounds in Ladino are um, are represented with individual letters. So um, all of the vowel sounds and the consonants. And right. Building, yeah. Yidd- Yiddish is very similar example,
0: to that, with with yeah. some exceptions.
1: Yeah, and yeah, there are some exceptions in Ladino as well. But so maybe if, like one, if, you, if you're seeing a lot of olives, for example, that might be one clue because of the, a lot of the, the a ah sounds that exist in, uh, in the romance-based uh, vocabulary of a lot of Ladino.
0: Right, but are there, are there olives at the end of the words, though, like in Aramaic?
1: Uh, so there are no olives at the end of the word. They use the letter A, or as we say, it, hey, right. the fifth letter. Okay. That, that letter is uh, in Ladino and among the Sephardim is uh, is is not pronounced. So uh, it gets when it's at the end of a word, it becomes ah. So like, um, uh, well, let me let me think if I can uh, think of uh, think of a word here. Well, it's not it's not, not one is not coming to me right away. But uh, if we think of like in rush, we say rush Hashanah or rush Hashana. Rosh Hashana. Right, but uh, among the Sephardim, you would say "Rosh Ashana," because of the, the silent. Uh, ah, the, okay. The, the, the a is not uh, not vocalized among the Sephardim. So the cemetery is also, uh, the bedachaim, or the, in other words, the Beth Achaim. I see. Uh, or they say bedachay, for short, when you mush it all together.
0: And, and I assume, as with Yiddish, that the Hebrew origin words retain their original spelling. Is that correct?
1: They do for the most part until we get really to the interwar years, and then you see in the popular press you it becomes apparent that people are not necessarily fully conversant in uh in Hebrew as maybe earlier generations may have been, and so sometimes you get them spelled out phonetically, so like um uh. Uh, you could see the name David, for example, spelled out. Dalad Aleph Vav Aleph Dalad.
0: I example. see, I see.
1: Um, and you have, you have a number of other uh, instances like that as well, in which the terms are spelled phonetically. But normally, I mean, in literary texts, the Hebrew spellings are, the traditional the standard Hebrew spellings are preserved.
0: Right. Devin, I could speak with you for another hour at least. There's so much to know. But since our time is really limited, I, I want to give you a chance to tell people what to do if they have or if they even think they may have Ladino books. Uh, how can they get in touch with you, and, and what should they do?
1: Well, I think um, I really appreciate that, uh, that opportunity to uh, enlist the assistance of your listeners. And uh, if they have uh, Ladino books and they be, may be interested in finding out what they're about, or if they may be interested in contributing them to our library or loaning them to us so that we may uh, digitize them and uh, incorporate them into our digital library and, uh, and what we hope will be actually a digital museum, a kind of tour through Ladino literature and Sephardic history, I invite you to please contact me at the, uh, at the University of Washington, um, either by email or by, uh, by telephone. Um, Great. Can you
0: give us a, both an email address and a phone number, then?
1: Sure, yeah. My, my email address is uh, denaar at uw.edu, and my telephone number is 206-616-6202. And uh, I invite you all to be my, uh, my collaborators. There's a, there's, a, there's a nice uh, Ladino expression that I learned from a colleague in, uh, in Israel that goes like this. It says, meter dos culos en una braga, which uh, it means to collaborate, but what it literally means is to put two uh, toches in one pair of underwear. <laughs> All
0: right. I couldn't top that, so we'll have to end on that point, but I hope the phone starts ringing off the hook. Okay, and, uh, thank, you very much, thank you so much, Professor David Nahr, Chair of the Sephardic Studies Program at the University of Washington, and the moving force behind a new project to do for Ladino what we're doing for Yiddish, which is to recover and digitize Ladino books. You've been listening to Tune In, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, tune into our website, www.yiddishbookcenter.org. That's all one word, yiddishbookcenter.org. Our producer is Sarah Bleichfeld. I'm Aaron Lansky. Sei mir stark und gesund. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.